You're listening to Dedication Point, an oral history of the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. This oral history project was produced by the Birds of Prey NCA partnership working in close collaboration with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Peregrine Fund's Archives of Falconry. The series features 20 interviews conducted with key figures in the history of the Snake River Canyon region. This is episode 15. Dean Hagerman is a historian, graduate student, and former National Guardsman who worked at the Orchard Combat Training Center within the Snake River Birds of Prey NCA. As someone with both direct experience working for the National Guard at their training center inside the NCA and a graduate student studying the history of this very area, Dean is uniquely positioned to share the history of this area. And this history is quite unique. As Dean points out, there are no other examples on the planet of an active military training area operating from within an area protected for environmental reasons. My name is Dean Hagerman, I live in Meridian. I was a member of the Idaho National Guard starting in 1980 and I retired in 2011. I did spend a little time in the Army Reserve there. And um, I'm a history student at BSU uh, with an interest in the National Conservation Area and the Orchard Combat Training Center, which is used to call the Orchard Training Area. It's now Combat Training Center. Awesome. Why don't we start with your personal connection to this area? You started working for the Guard in that area in 1980. Um, I mean, was that your first time out in that landscape? It, it absolutely was. I'd actually been on active duty, and I got a job up in McCall. And uh, when I was getting off active duty, I decided I was going to continue my military service. So I joined the National Guard. The first time I went out to the OTA was probably... Uh, March or April of 1980. Um, The closest I'd been to it before was driving down the interstate when I moved up from Arizona, came down the interstate from uh, Twin Falls area. And uh, it was, all it was was more desert like I'd seen in Northern Arizona and Utah. So I didn't think much about it until we started training out there. Um, I was in aviation. So most of the time uh, I flew in, I didn't drive out, I flew in We would land and we would set up camp and then we would do missions out of there. So spent a lot of time walking around the ground those first three years and uh, then later began training out there in units where we had to drive out. So I got a lot more exposure to the area. And I mean, what was your impression once you started to, you know, get a feel for this area? I mean, did anything stand out? I will tell you, uh, when we flew in, uh, the first thing that stood out was uh, you have to really be careful where you're going out there, especially at night, because there's some big damn holes out there. Badgers make some big holes. Uh, and that would be, that was probably the most startling thing or memorable thing. I mean, I looked at it, it was desert, it was dirt, it was sagebrush. Okay, but those holes, they made a serious impression on me. <laughs> On the other side, in the beginning, I had no idea about the withdrawal that would happen with Secretary Andrus in 1980 was, you know, there was no talk about protection or or anything like that, Uh, was we also used the badger holes to save us from having to dig trenches because they didn't have porta-potties out there back then. So that was, we typically tried to haul our garbage out, but there were certain things we weren't going to haul out and we left behind, often in badger holes, so... I'm sorry to say. <laughs> gotcha. So I want to get to this point right where you were working for the Guard mm-hmm. um, at the Orchard Combat Training Center to this point where you're at now where you're, you know, you've decided to like look into the, take a, this deep dive into the history mm-hmm. of the area, which includes the relationship with the Guard and the relationship between the Guard and the BLM and this National Conservation Area. I mean, was there something like from that work that you did you know, back in the 80s that led to this interest? No. The interest I have as a grad student, Mm -hmm. I I sort of backed into it. I was pursuing uh, another interest, but I was um, asked to do history research for a documentary. 
I was fairly familiar with the geography. I knew a little bit about the history. I knew about the birds of prey as time progressed, but they were, wanted to do a documentary, so I thought, okay, I'll go in and do research. And as a part of that, I started finding out more and more really interesting things um, about the history of the area. But through the documentary, one of the things I did was interviews, like we're doing. I would come up with the questions and somebody else would videotape and we had a chance to talk with biologists out there, cultural resource manager, which is the physical history of the area based on who was there, whether it was the native, uh, native population, whether it was settlers coming through, the military. Really, really fascinating. So that's what has got me to really try to dig deep into it. And it's fun for me because I can oh, that's what's going on, why we started doing this. Oh, now I understand that better. It makes more sense. Uh, so things that were happening are no longer in a vacuum. Sure. I can sort of connect the dots to other things. Sure. Where did your interest in, in history generally come from? I've had an interest. Uh, I know I can, I can uh, definitely trace it back until fourth grade. And being that I'm 67, that was a long time ago. But in fourth grade, I started taking an interest in um, military aircraft from World War II. I don't know how that happened, but so I started studying World War II. And then, you know, in sixth or seventh grade, I was wondering, well, how did we get to World War II? So I start backtracking and I get to World War I. Oh, and what happened after? Well, we ended up in Korea. So my from World War II, my timeline of study went in both directions. Like I said, I've got an interest, historical interest in everything from the Peloponnesian War to today. It's not just military. It's everything. I love everything history. And that's one of the hard things uh, in my master's program. I do research, and I'm constantly reminded that at some point, the research has to end, and you have to do something with it. So I'm really in the research part of it. I'm, the difficulty is doing something with it. <laughs> I hear that. Um, I'm trying to get to, like, the heart of what inspired you to take on this big research project focused on the NCA and Cecil Anders's role and and also the guard. You know, so you got hired to work as a historian on this documentary project that mm -hmm. was going on. Were there things that you learned in there that perked your interest and you're like, oh, I need to delve deeper into this? I mean, and, and like, what yeah. was there something in particular that was like, oh, wow, this is really, this is more fascinating than I realized? Well, I'll back up a little bit before I started working with the, uh, the documentary. I actually... Uh, served with the Guard full-time, not just as a traditional uh, member, for over 20 years. And uh, I became very, very proud of, of the things we were doing out there. I knew people. I was close with people in the environmental management office. So I knew what the Guard was doing environmentally out there, the work they were doing. Um, plus, they have a, uh, a premier training center out there. Very proud of that because units come from all over the country and from other countries as well. And they come out there and they train there and they love training out there. So there was a certain personal pride in being associated with that. As part of the um, documentary, though, I did not realize the role the guard played in the, the bigger picture, the birds of prey. We'd have a family come. We'd go on out and look at the birds of prey. Oh, that's interesting. But I started finding out how critical the uh, scientific role that the guard played. If you look at, and this is something I've really learned uh, more recently, but if you look at the dollar per acre spent doing research and management of resources, this is sort of off the top of my head, but I'm, I'd venture to say that the military, National Guard, is spending between seven and ten times as much per acre as either the BLM or the World Center for Birds of Prey simply because there is more money there. And, you know, you can debate uh, whether that's the way it should be, but they spend a lot of time and put a lot of resources into it. Again, that connects to the pride I have in the, the role that the Guard plays out there. But building on that, um, I met Cecil Andrus back in, in the 80s when he was the former governor of, of uh, Idaho. Excuse me, I'm from Minnesota, fall back. <laughs> uh, originally from Minnesota. I've been here for almost 40 years. So, But I met him back in the 80s uh, through the McCall Winter Carnival. I was active with that, uh, the Idaho Centennial and all. Anyway, I got to know Cease and found him to be just this really charming, relatable person. And I really liked him. And then more recently, I've been involved in politics and reconnected with him a lot more in the, the last four or five years. So 
I've always liked uh, Cecil. I think he really did a great job representing Idaho as governor and as secretary of the interior. Um, Even before I knew Idaho, I knew who he was from that. So that's where the personal connection came. Why? In doing the research, I thought, here's a story that I don't think has been told. You know, you'll hear Cecil's name mentioned once in a while, especially when he did the uh, the withdrawal in 1980. But I believe he had a much deeper connection and more critical connection to the establishment of the NCA than has previously been told. Awesome. Well, let's delve into that then. Okay. Um, you know, I'd like to start with the first idea or like inspiration. You know, whose idea was it originally to say like we should protect this area down in the canyon, you know? Well, you know, it's okay. I'll tell you from my research, yeah, and this yeah. is this is not from my personal experience, but the research uh, that I've conducted, I would say the first person, and I think this is well documented, who became aware of the critical nature of the canyon was Morley Nelson. I mean, he's become famous because of his association with raptors, something that he took an interest in even before uh, he discovered the nesting sites along the river. Uh, I'm not sure how his interest translated into uh, Secretary of the Interior Roger C.B. Morton setting aside, I think it was 26 or 28,000 acres along the Snake River. On both sides of the river, he set aside that land in 1971 as as a uh, secretary's withdrawal uh, as a natural area. And um, he said, I'm not sure how that happened, but that was the same time that Governor Andrus, a brand new governor, 1971, that was around the time he started taking an interest in the area. And you know, I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this story, but it's been reported that when Morton did his first walkabout on the land that he had withdrawn, that uh, Andrus said to him that, congratulations, Senator, uh, Secretary, Mr. Secretary, you've set aside, thank you for protecting the bird's bedroom. What are you going to do about the kitchen, meaning the rest of the land? Where did they feed? And that's where I think from that point on is where Andrus became more and more directly involved. There's other stories I could tell you about uh, his early involvement. But that's the, like I said, to answer your question, that's the first time I think people took a genuine interest in it. Prior to that, from the military perspective, I've talked to soldiers that had trained out. I talked to one, started training out there in 1954. He was originally with an artillery unit. 1953 is when they, the National Guard had a, a memorandum of understanding with the BLM to start using that. And uh, they just started plowing roads willy-nilly wherever they needed them. They started lobbing artillery shells and machine guns and that kind of stuff. Pretty much without consideration, as uh, one adjutant general stated in his annual report, that they were really fortunate the Guard has now got a desert wasteland to train in. And unfortunately, I think that's what most people thought of it, was just a desert wasteland. Obviously, if you spend any time out there, you know it's a lot more than that. And through the research stuff I've been doing, I've learned a lot more about the critical uh, biology they have out there, whether it's uh, plants or animals and endangered species. But Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that answers your question. But no, that's fantastic. Start. And clearly there was a certain type of attitude back in the 50s when the training center was established, mm-hmm. right? And obviously there was an understanding with the BLM at that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously that attitude that you just described has changed. And I guess I'm wondering when that attitude started to shift. And and I'm also wondering like if you're aware of how people working for the Guard What did they think about the establishment of the natural area in 1971? Okay, well, looking at it from um, where the attitude started to change, I think really was driven by the beginning of a concerted effort to study the area to figure out what do we have here, what needs to be protected. That was a direct outgrowth of the original withdrawal and ceases challenge, you know, it's what do we do to protect the kitchen. Uh, The BLM, I don't know exactly when, but I know that by 1975, they were heavily involved in science. Sometime between 75 and I'm going to say 77, the National Guard hired an environmental scientist to begin uh, doing study out there. I also know they were working with uh, college interns uh, from uh, Boise State and the University of Idaho, I know those two for sure, that they brought in to do science. So science really began to drive things uh, starting in about the mid-70s. For the, uh, the Guard, as I said, I started training out there in 19, beginning of 1980 before they'd had the withdrawal. And uh, yeah, like I said, uh, Badger Holes were a convenient place for us. You know, we weren't concerned about 
the animals that were out there. Uh, we pretty much, uh, we had some limitations as to where we drove because by then there was science saying, we need to protect this, don't drive over it in this particular sagebrush and there's uh, slick spot pepper grass and some other endangered species out there. Uh, so there were some limitations. Uh, we tried to stay on the road. We had lanes where we could go to um, for training and stuff, but generally speaking, still not a lot of limitations. That came later when it, with the National Conservation Area, and I want to say it was 1980, well, we had the, the first MOU, Memorandum of Understanding with a Guard, based on science, I want to say was in either 79 or 80. In 85, they established a pattern of going back and reviewing, okay, here are the things we've done in the last five years, here's what we need to do the next five years to protect, to enhance, to improve the area out there. So it became a lot more central to the training. That's one thing. I do want to mention uh, somebody, I don't know if she'd want me to mention her name, probably it would be all right. I'll say her first name was uh, Marge, but she became known as Sagebrush Sally. And she was the bane of tankers, I will tell you. She created resentment and, and to a degree, I think, inspiration because she was, I think she was the first environmental scientist for the guard that was working out there. But once an area had been designated for set aside, if she found out somebody went in there, you could be guaranteed she was going to get up in your face about it. Uh, you don't do it. She would explain it and all that. And over time, she also wrote a column from Sagebrush Sally that was really informative. And I believe that between, like I said, about the mid-70s through by 1990, because we'd had some major um, construction work done out there too, that she, there was a definite culture shift in how the military looked at that land out there. I think that has gotten um, many improvement in the culture. I've been working on um, working with uh, the command, the new commanding general, the guard, General uh, Mike Garshak, also working on uh, training videos for people using it and I uh, using the um, military training area. But looking at what people are learning and recognizing the value of that land, not only to the guard as it exists, but in the context of the National Conservation Area, the attitude is just, it is a culture shift. It's the only way I can, uh, it's taken two generations, but it is a definite culture shift. Yeah, we've definitely been seeing that, our interactions with the guard, um, for sure. To just like take another step back for a moment, I want to mm -hmm. explore some of the things you were talking about, about the, the connections and the relationship between the guard and the NCA and how that's evolved. But, you know, the biggest sort of gap in our research, you know, as far as like the folks that we've talked to thus far as a part of this project is in the steps that led up to that original 1971 withdrawal. Um, and it sounds like based on what you're saying, as far as the connection with the guard and what the guard thought of that original, I mean, it sounds like they weren't involved at that point and it, it was just set aside and the guard maybe wasn't even consulted and it wasn't until later that there was, you know, interaction started to happen and collapse collaboration on research. Does that sound accurate? Yeah, I, I think it is. I haven't found anything that, um, looking at the boundaries of the 1971 withdrawal, I don't think it impacted, I don't think it came as far north of the river, of the Snake River, as the training area. So I think the guard was likely like, eh, okay. Right. So I don't think it was of much concern to them. But when they started doing the science, trying to get the National Conservation Area set aside, and eventually it was... Secretary Andrus did the withdrawal of 482,000 acres in 1980. Uh, at that time, the military was consulted. If you look at the original proposed legislation, and which never made it into Congress or out of Congress, and the secretary's withdrawal, there is a cutout to protect the military use of the training area. But the science, and um, there's a gentleman, I actually three biologists, or two biologists and the BLM district manager at the time uh, that I have talked with, and uh, I'm going to mention them by name. There was uh, Karen Steenhoff, Mike Kochart, and uh, Dean Bibles. Mm -hmm. And uh, Dean was the district manager. One of the first things they looked at was one of the largest concentration of prairie falcons anywhere in the world. Something like 25% of the population of North, in North America at one time or another resided within along the Snake River. So they decided to use that as an indicator species. And uh, 
they thought, well, it's only going to fly this far, but we'll study it. And there's some really hysterical stories about them trying to follow these birds before they had radio trackers and stuff. But they thought they'd find out how far they flew to get food. And they had a certain distance and they said, okay, well, the boundary's probably here. Well, the bird ended up flying over twice as far. And they realized that they had badly misjudged the area that they hunted in. Mm -hmm. And the assumption was, if we can protect an area to support the prairie falcon, we'll be able to help all of the species out there. So uh, that's how they set that northern boundary, which was well north of the northern edge of the military training area. Although the military butts up right on that northern uh, boundary. I think uh, my recollection is the original study showed that they should consider setting aside 519,000 acres. They eventually cut it down to 482, but um, and I don't know exactly why they adjusted that. But uh, clearly that put the military in the middle of it. And one of the unique things about the uh, orchard training area and its location is, in, in the research I've done, and I've looked... Um, not in depth, but I've scanned around to see if there's anything like it anywhere else in the world. The military, they call that kind of training range a kinetic training range, meaning there's stuff being blown up out there. And uh, it's the only kinetic training range anywhere in the world, as near as I can find, that sits in the middle of a conservation area or a natural area of any kind, which is crazy. And the idea that you can do that and still protect the birds, and every five years they go through and they look at it, and the science supports that the military with the adjustments they've made because they've had to do some mitigation and the work they've done to improve the habitat has actually enhanced the quality of land out there to support the birds. Not just the birds, but also the, uh, hate to call mammals and reptiles food stocks, but they've done a great deal to protect the food stocks for the birds. I just recently read that despite the tanks and everything being out there, and I mentioned badgers at the beginning, I think it just recently read that has the largest concentration per square mile of badgers anywhere in the world. Again, how can you do that in the middle of a kinetic training range? I just find that amazing. So... It is amazing. And it, it's, you know, it's one of those things that makes that NCA and the whole situation really unique. I'm curious, and I don't know if you know this, right? There's this situation going on in the 70s where an area has already been set aside and withdrawn as a natural area, but it doesn't include any of the area of the orchard training area, mm -hmm. right? But then it sounds like there was collaboration between the orchard training area and the BLM to conduct this research mm -hmm. on birds of prey and prairie falcons specifically. And that research led them to an understanding that actually in order to protect the prairie falcon and all these other other species that they actually should protect an area that encompasses the training area. And it's almost like the folks doing this research, working for the National Guard, it's like they realize that, oh, shoot, like this protected area should encircle us. Like we're included in it, right? I wonder like, were there people upset about that? You know what I mean? Like, because that's the moment, right? 1980, when, you know, Andrus made that withdrawal that expanded the boundaries. And like, I just wonder if, were there people upset? You know, for the guard, were they, or were, they, were they concerned that it was going to affect, you know, their ability to, like, do their job and do these training exercises? Well, I can tell you that uh, even from my own e experience, um, well, here, I'm going to put it in history major. They'll do the, uh, <laughs> the history, a little bit of the history piece. Uh, the commanding general of the National Guard at that time was uh, Major General James Brooks. And um, I've seen documentation that essentially the Guard was supporting the research. I've seen memorandums where there were some concerns expressed about the impact it would have. I believe that when Andrus did the withdrawal in, in uh, 1980, I'm not sure anybody fully comprehended the extent that that would impact the training out there. And every five years, as I said, every five years they would do a review, and every five years, typically, there would be more restrictions put in place. I will say, and this is something uh, I think you'd find is unique, that the boundaries, and you alluded to it, the boundaries of the National Conservation Area were established by science. Uh, Dean Bibles will tell you it's the only NCA established where the boundaries were determined by scientific research, not by geographic features or how much land they could get under federal control. But yeah, from my experience out there is that there were more restrictions on particularly tracked vehicles because they break through the crust of the earth. So not only do they damage the plants up front, they destroy the soil the plants are growing in. That has a longer impact. Fires was another big issue. You know, when you're shooting artillery and tank rounds out there, they often 
start fires because they have fire department and everything out there. The response is better there than it is on the rest of the BLM as far as uh, responding to fires. Although the National Guard, they have uh, fire trucks out there. They'll, it's my understanding they'll respond anywhere. But so I think as it became more restrictive, people started then noticing, well, why do we have to do this? And in the beginning, it wasn't explained so much that it's because of the National Conservation Area. It was environmental. You know, we had to protect it for environmental reasons. That's part of that education process where I think there became, as people got broader knowledge, that's where the culture shift occurred. I will say, too, um, you know, we're talking about the National Conservation Area and the Birds of Prey people and the military. But if you look at that story, it's a bigger story of stakeholders. I mean, I've read letters from President Idaho Wool Growers Association at that time, Brad Little, writing on it, expressing concerns of the wool growers, the Cattlemen's Association, uh, the Farm Bureau. There are a lot of groups that had problems with the establishment of the conservation area. But over time, most of their concerns were addressed. In the case of, I know I've seen one letter from the Cattlemen's Association, 1993, when Congress passed the law, the president of the Cattlemen's Association said, the steps you've taken satisfy everything. We're, we fully support the establishment of the National Conservation Area. And it's like, these are stakeholders you would assume wouldn't get along, but they all came together. And uh, there is a committee, still meets today, it's been going since at least 1985, that has the Peregrine Fund people, the Raptor Program at uh, Boise State, the National Guard, Cattlemen, Idaho Power was another, another significant player out there. So it's just the stakeholders coming together, I think, may be the most unique aspect of all of that. Yeah. Definitely. And, you know, I think a few of the things that we've been talking about kind of connect to this, right? As far as you mentioned, the amount of money that is spent by the Guard in this area on research and conservation and how substantial it is. And then we also know, right, that, as you mentioned, Dean Bibles loves to talk about the fact that this is the only, I mean, if I remember correctly, like, he says not just the only national conservation area, but the only protected area globally whose boundaries were established based on the habitat requirements as determined by scientific research of a particular species or an ecosystem, which is really remarkable, right? And then you also, on top of that, it's a situation where, like, you have this military training center within the boundaries of the yeah. NCA and they're spending a lot of money mm -hmm. on research to protect it. And like, it seems like those two are connected. You know what I mean? The role of the National Guard must have clearly played a role in creating the situation where mm -hmm. we were able to, all these stakeholders were able to come together and establish this really unique protected area whose boundaries are based on the habitat requirements of the prairie falcon and the other species that live there. Yeah, I, with my, <laughs> you're right. <laughs> you're, you're absolutely right. I believe talking with Steenhoff and mm -hmm. Cochart, science really is the foundation of all of it. Uh, talking with, uh, I'll use her old name, Marjorie Blue. She's a scientist. Mm -hmm. She supervised scientists that work out there. Charlie, uh, Charlie Bond, who's currently with the Environmental Management Office, and uh, his staff, they are out there every day doing scientific research, and it's on everything. I mean, from the, it's the reptiles, the insects, the plants, and the raptors. Oh, and, and the mammals, <laughs> the food stocks. <laughs> um, and that science, uh, I was out there this spring where you had people from the World Center out there, BLM people and uh, National Guard people teaching students. They were working together cooperatively to teach a future scientist class, I think is what it was, and the groups of students about that desert and why that desert's important, why these plants, why they're protected and why they're important, or why the various species out there, whether they be scorpions or kangaroo rats or jackrabbits or whatever, they're all important. Paiute ground squirrel. Uh, we used to know them as the Thompson ground squirrel and uh, yeah, they're all over the place out there. We used to call them whistle pigs because they, they sound actually a little bit like a guinea pig. They'll stand up and they make this high-pitched squeal sound as a warning thing. But they're everywhere out there. And it's one of those things like, aren't they cute? And God, we have to protect these damn things. Why do we have to protect the ground squirrels? You know, it's because they're everywhere out there. But they are one of the key food sources. But again, that's we make jokes about it. But it's something over time we've come to realize why they're important. And I think my experience is that, of course, my experience is through the National Guard, but it's the National Guard scientists and the training they put on and the information they put on is through uh, Sagebrush Sally or whatever that really 
made a difference on what happened out there. And it is the uh, population of a number of species has improved. The uh, amount of sagebrush has improved. The slick spot peppergrass, which is an endangered species, I don't know that it's improved, but they've stopped the decline of it. You know, and that's science, and that's the National Guard doing the science because it's their piece of turf. Mm -hmm. I think that does drive a lot of what's going on out there with the the larger conservation area. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of it comes down to, like, available funding. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. Um, And, you know, there's... So one of the most interesting and, and I think important research projects that has gone on out there is, you know, the project that when it started created those boundaries, right? Which is the research project looking at prairie falcons and, you know, breeding and nesting success and foraging where they forage. That's how the boundaries were established. But that was established as like, that was supposed to be a, um, a long-term monitoring project mm-hmm. where every single year, you know, they didn't do the same level of effort every single year, maybe every five years, they do a really intensive effort and then just do sections. But Every single year, it was surveyed from the mid-70s when they started that all the way up through 2003. Yeah. And for significant portions of that time, the funding was coming from the Guard. You know, if, like, they had been reliant on just funding from BLM, it would have stopped, you know, along yeah. much earlier probably. Yeah, I can't speak to that, uh, but I do know that the Guard, one of the things they're extremely proud of mm. from the study standpoint is they have most study sets, they call them, most study sets are three, maybe five-year study sets. They'll mark out a piece of turf, uh, and they will study it. You know, they'll, they'll literally put a boundary on it with a stake in the ground that has grid coordinates so you can find that exact spot, or GPS coordinates, so you can find that expa- exact spot year after year. And I said it's typically three to five. They have study sets that have gone on well over 20 years out there, and Talking to them, and I don't know how much research they've done, but talking with them, I've been told nobody knows of a study set for ground that has gone on that long. I've seen, I've looked through the uh, the slides they have uh, where they'll go on out and they'll do uh, photograph the ground and then they'll photograph in the four cardinal directions from that point. And you can see a change over time, which for historians, that's a huge thing. But for biologists to see, especially when it comes to plant species, uh, change over time is the indicator. That tells you what's going on. I know that prior to the 80s, well, I talked to somebody who is uh, an intern out there and then she did her, I believe it was her master's project out there and then went to work for the Guard uh, as a scientist. She had a, one of her favorite pictures where she took photos over time of this one piece of ground and you could see Russian thistle moving in, which is an invasive species and it is not a productive one and it burns. It moved in and it uh, started blocking out sagebrush. But through the mitigation measures of the Guard, you can look at that same piece of ground, it gets worse, and then you can see it getting better as there's more sagebrush, less Russian thistle and stuff. So there's progress, and you can literally, looking through their photographs, you can literally see the change over time where there is improvement. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. Again, as a member of the Guard, when all this was going on out there, I'm very proud of that. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Cecil Andrus. The focus of your research project that you're doing is for your master's is sort of his role. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm just curious, like, what stands out, right? I mean, you said at the beginning that you feel like he played a larger role than he's maybe given credit for, for, uh, you know, everything that happened, all the steps that needed to occur for mm-hmm. that area to get established as an NCA. Are there specific examples of, like, things that, that he's done that he didn't get credit for? I mean, like, what, or is there anything that stands out or was surprising to you as you went through your research, you know? The one thing he is recognized Mm. for, and I'll say it up front, is that in 1980, he set aside, he did a withdrawal of 482,000 acres Mm -hmm. of what is essentially now the National Conservation Area. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the work he did, I'll tell you a story. And uh, this is a frequently told story, but he did it in his speech honoring Morley Nelson in 1986. He talked about how he met Morley and what he did. And so he said he met Morley, and uh, 1971, Morley was taking care of injured raptors. He would find them, and he would bring them in, and he told Cease, who was, became a governor in 1971, in his speech, he said that Morley told him how he was having trouble feeding the bird. He couldn't find enough meat for them. And Cease said, because Cease was an avid hunter, waterfowl, upland game birds and whatnot, he said, well, I can give you some meat for the birds. And he did that. And it got to a point, according to Cease, where he could no longer keep the birds fed. So he got in touch with other Western governors and said, hey, is there something you can do to help us out? 
I look at that not as that's a fun story, but that's when Morley starts getting connected to other other states, that it isn't just Idaho that knows him. And of course, there were the, uh, Morley was a consultant on a Disney film and they did a film about him and he became more broadly known. But I think the first steps in him becoming known outside of Idaho was Cease through getting him uh, food for the birds. Love the behind the scenes stuff. I mean, that's like, yeah. it's fascinating, right? Like a really small thing, you know, like, oh, I'll help you find food for your birds, mm-hmm. right? And like, that seems just like a, a really small detail, but actually it worked to establish this relationship and, you know, led to, you know, Cecil making connections for Morley um, in other states and, and also getting Morley more involved into politics. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff is fascinating. Cecil was the politician. He was also an environmentalist. Later, he would have described himself as a conservationist. Sometime prior to uh, leaving as Secretary of the Interior, he got connected with the Finance Committee of the Nature Conservancy. With the set-aside, there was private land inside the withdrawal area, and uh, the Nature Conservancy had offered to purchase the inholdings so it would be a more—the BLM would own all the land in there, or the the state. And uh, Cease joined the Finance Committee along with Morley Nelson. He wrote Governor Evans at the time and said, asked him to join along, and there was a whole list of names of people around the committee, to be a part of that finance committee to raise money for the Nature, nature Conservancy to buy those, those inholdings, the uh, farm or ranches that were in there. You never hear about that, you, you know, uh, but that was something he actively did, and he recruited other people to be a part of it because he realized having private holdings inside a national conservation area was always going to create management obstacles or management problems for the land. So they purchased it, mm-hmm. and it wasn't done through condemnation or, you know, uh, eminent domain or anything like that. They bought the land. Mm-hmm. And a, a, another, and C's talked about this uh, later in his career about public-private partnerships. There's a perfect example of one, you know, so... Yeah, it's... Yeah, you're right. Like, that's the first I've heard that story. And and it's like, okay, yeah, like, even when at times when he was not serving political office, he was working through the private sector to Mm -hmm. forward the same goals. Mm -hmm. And uh, I know that there was a time, I don't know when, but in one of the uh, study periods when they were getting ready to renew the MOU between BLM and the Guard, there was an effort to remove the Guard from the desert. In other words, close the training area. Um, I want to say it occurred in Cecil's uh, third term as governor. I don't have those dates yet, but I know the effort was there. I don't know exactly when it occurred. But the partnerships, the stakeholders coming together in study committee and management committee, and I think Cecil was a real critical piece of that, but the guard kept it. You know, I don't know if you know that uh, Idaho got, had a coup, if you will, when it came to uh, part of the uh, National Conservation Area. Uh, Tom Cade, who was mm-hmm. the first director of the uh, Raptor, the Graduate Raptor Studies Program at BSU, he was also the director of the Peregrine Fund simultaneously. He was probably the leading expert on raptors in the world, working at Cornell. Cornell Ornithology is the preeminent ornithological program in the world, and he was there. He was well-established, well-respected, and all that, but he ended up coming here. Well, he came here because John Kaiser, president of Boise State, um, they kept saying, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, get this Raptor Studies program going, we're trying to find a director. They got Tom Kane, the preeminent scientist, to come here, but that was during Cease's third term as governor when that happened. I cannot help but believe that somehow he was not involved in getting the funding from the legislature, getting that program going. Yeah, I read that. And when I read his background, I oh, Tom Kate, his, his name is on all manner of documents. I thought, oh, okay. Then I started reading more on who Tom Cade was, and I thought, wow, did we score a coup with that? And I, like I said, I can't help but believe that somewhere in there, uh, Governor Andrus was involved. Part of my research is to find that connection. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, of course, it it was also, like, simultaneously, as I'm sure the former BSU president was, you know, discussing creating this Raptor Research Program through BSU, the Peregrine Fund was also looking for, for a, a new, new home. Lo- a new location, yeah. right? And I've been told by numerous people that they were talking to Morley. 
I know that, Morley that, lobbied that Morley hard for played, that. Yeah, and, and that Morley played a significant role in convincing them to move to Boise. Well, clearly Morley was involved in that. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any doubt that the Peregrine Fund establishing a permanent home here, I think that was a direct result of Morley's efforts. By the time they moved it, Idaho was becoming famous because of our Raptors. It had the Disney film. But uh, I think Morley had had a long-time relationship with Tom Cade, and I think working with Dr. Cade was another reason why the support moved to bringing it out here. I think our congressional delegation, um, reasonably certain because federal funds were involved in the move and establishing the center out there, our congressional delegation came on board. But and when you look at the makeup of the delegation from 1980 through 1993 when Congress passed the, uh, the legislation to establish the National Conservation Area as a congressional withdrawal, which means it's permanent, but our congressional delegation were not people that would you would normally assume would be given to federal withdrawals, federal funds going to stuff like that, uh, like the uh, World Center for Birds of Prey, and yet they came on board. And my take on it, is that a lot of that had to do with the work that Cecil Andrus did. Because as governor, secretary of the interior, he had worked with all these guys. He'd known them a long time. And again, that's why my research, I want to focus on him because I think he's the, um, I'll call him the protagonist through the whole story, is that he is this common thread, he and Morley Nelson. But Cease was the politician. Mm -hmm. Morley wasn't. Morley was the face of the Raptor program. Morley was the, I mean, I've talked to people that he would start talking about Raptors and everybody in the room would want to start, let's go out now, we got to go out and do something right now. I mean, he Mm -hmm. could get people to fall in love with the Raptors and that land out there. But it requires practical work on the part of a politician to make that happen. And I really think Cease might have been that common thread. Yeah, I mean, the, the more we dig into this research, the more clear it becomes. In a lot of ways, this story, the story about how this NCA was created, it's really a story about like this friendship between these two remarkable people. Yes, yeah, and uh, well, the 1986 dinner they had for Morley that Governor Andrews spoke at, I think he was back to governor then. Yes, 86, he should have been. I've actually seen the speech uh, on a yellow pad that Cease wrote it by hand. And you can see him making changes to it. And it becomes really clear in the words that he had a lot of respect and there was a close friendship between the the two of them. And I think that continued throughout their lives. And I think uh, Cease is emblematic of something that's unique about Idaho and our relationship. You know, there's a lot of going back to there was the Sagebrush Rebellion um, there are a lot of people that were anti-government, anti-government land. We're coming back to that narrative again. But yet every time you have politicians promoting the idea of, of getting the land from the federal government, I don't want to say getting it back because they never had it, but getting that land into state hands, you have the citizens of Idaho who have a deep love for the land say, no, I don't like that idea because... If the state takes it back, that means they're going to have to sell it off, which means I can't go walk where I want to. I can't hunt where I want to or fish. I won't have access to that. And I think that's just something that is so unique. Um, I don't know if it's—I think it's unique to Idaho. It may be uh, other Western states have that, but I kind of think it's unique to Idaho. And I think Cecil Andrus represents—and Morley Nelson, too, for that matter— represents that so well in their personal lives. All the things they did, how they conducted themselves, the work they did, I think is so emblematic of— who Idahoans are. Mm-hmm. And I'm from Minnesota, you know, and got lots of uh, woods and lakes and everything there. And I spent a lot of time in the outdoors back there. But it's a really different attitude when you come out here. Idaho is a very conservative state, especially compared to the time and place I grew up. But it's old fashioned kind of conservatism that is, I think, unfortunately, in short supply these days, where it, it isn't all about business or something like that. Yeah, but I really like being here. You brought up the Sagebrush Rebellion, which happened during the 80s. And it's interesting that, you know, by the time we get to the early 90s, Cecil Andrus is reelected as, as governor, right? This politician who is known for his love for public lands and, you know, numerous fights that he took on to get additional levels of protection mm-hmm. for particular areas of public land. So it's interesting that, like, you know, we talk about this movement and all these people in the 80s during the Sage Rush Rebellion that are trying to shift management of 
land away from the federal government. And it's almost like the reaction to that is, you know, from the voters of Idaho is, no, we want this guy to run the state Mm -hmm. because he protects our public lands, Mm -hmm. you know? If you've talked with Dean Bibles, you may have heard this story before that he'd been the BLM district manager and he went back to D.C. Mm. to work in the secretary's Mm -hmm. office. And um, after the change of administration, when Reagan came in, um, James Watts became the secretary of the interior. And James Watt had been a vocal critic of the the establishment of the NCA, also the establishment of the uh, the Alaska National Wildlife, whatever the big set-aside up was there and some other things that Andrus had done. Mm-hmm. And he was a vocal critic of it and had uh, indicated he was going to undo that, sort of like what happened with Zinke with Escalante, Grand Staircase, or and Big Bear, I think. Yeah, Bear's Ears, yeah. Bear's Ears. Mm-hmm. And he came in, and he was going to overturn the withdrawals. And uh, Dean said he was there, and uh, the deputy secretary or the Watts number one assistant came to him and said, okay, you were here when this happened, when the set-aside occurred. Uh, I need you to draft this stuff so we can undo it. And Dean was a little shocked and apparently said something. uh, Somehow in the conversation, the guy said, well, who supports this? And he said, well, Senator McClure, Idaho senator. Uh, Not a member of the Sagebrush Rebellion, but not big on government management of lands. And uh, the guy said, well, don't do anything until I get back to you. So he goes and talks to Senator McClure, according to uh, Dean's story. And he came back a few days later and he told Dean, he said, don't touch any of that unless either I or the secretary come and talk to you. Just leave it alone. Well, that's indicative of just how much our congressional delegation had come on board. Mm-hmm. And that was in 1981. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's just like, wow. You know, and... Um, and I think McClure, if he was indeed on board, came on board because he heard from the citizens of Idaho that we want this. Right. And then in 93, when Loraco was pushing the legislation, 91 to 93, when he was trying to get the legislation to do a congressional withdrawal, uh, the person that came on board to help him as a congressman had been a member of the Sagebrush Rebellion was Senator Larry Craig. And uh, Craig tightened up the language improve the the legal language to uh, protect the multiple uses and everything, but he co-sponsored it in the Senate. How does that happen? Again, I think that's something that's unique to Idaho, but I can't help but believe, though I have no proof at this point, uh, I hope to, but I can't help but believe that somehow Governor Andrus at the time was involved. Oh, he must have been, right? I mean, he was very well known for those types of political negotiations, right? I mean, much more recently, everything he did with Mike Simpson yeah. to get protection Boulder for White the Cloud. Boulder White Clouds. Yeah. Right? yeah. Again, I think that that is indicative of who Cecil was as a person and who Cecil represents as a citizen of Idaho. Yeah, he worked across aisles. Uh, Congressman Simpson, to get that through, had to work across aisles. Mm-hmm. You look at the Owyhees. Senator Crapo had to work across the aisle mm-hmm. to make that happen. Mm-hmm. I think that's Idaho. Yep. For all the complaining people do about politics, I really think uh, Idaho has something they can teach the rest of the country and how what happens when you come together to do things to benefit everybody and not just a narrow part of the population. Mm-hmm. Be it uh, environmentalists, conservationists, cattlemen, wool growers, or other businesses. Mm-hmm. Work across the aisle. Yeah. I don't know if you know this uh, in your research. Uh, this goes way back. Did you know that the Army Air Corps had signed an agreement uh, with the BLM in 1941? No. Okay. World War II started. Uh-huh. In 1941, I believe it was just before Pearl Harbor, could have been just after, the Army Air Corps signed an agreement with the BLM to use the orchard training area or the, the desert land south of Boise as a bombing range. Interestingly, they didn't drop, you know, 500-pound bombs out there. They dropped 500-pound sandbags with a black powder charge in it so you could see where it landed. But to create the bombing range, they went out there with bulldozers and tore up the desert to create outlines of buildings and rail yards and all that so they could, when they flew over it, they could see where to drop their bombs. And uh, Charlie Bond has LIDAR photos of the desert that were taken I don't know, three or four years ago, you can still see all the construction their work that was done out there, which shows you what happens that once you tear it up, it doesn't come back for a long, long time. You know, you look at that 70 years ago. Mm. 
if you look at it, you can see where all that soil was disturbed, even minor buildings and stuff that were set up. But, the, you know, the military's had an interest in it going back at least as far as 1941. But, um, yeah, and then in uh, 49, they abrogated the agreement, and in 53, the Guard came in mm. and started training it. So people just assumed it's a wasteland. It is Obviously, it isn't, as we know now, thanks to the science. It's an amazing area out there. I, I will tell you, and this is just a little personal story. See if I can get through it. It's a stupid thing to get emotional about. One of my um, lingering memories about being out there is waking up in the morning to these amazing sunrises. There would be dust in the air from vehicles and stuff, and there would be just these... At night, it would be beautiful, but there was something about it being in the morning, and there would be a layer of dust 20 or 30 feet above the ground. You could see it all around you, but it refracted the light in such a way that it made the sunrises, when the skies were clear, just spectacular. And the other thing is, you could smell the sagebrush. Um, I go out there now. Every time I go to the desert, I go on out there, and I run my hands through the sagebrush, and it, it does something to me physically. And I think if you get out there and you spend spend time out there and get to know the land and get to know what lives out there, it does. You connect with it on a visceral level that's hard to explain. <laughs> no, I, I absolutely agree with you. And, you know, I didn't grow up here either. You know, I grew up on the East Coast, um, but I've been living out here for about 10 years now. And there is absolutely something very special about the smells, right? And yeah. like the memories that it connects you with. Um, and like walking out into the sagebrush after a light rain, mm -hmm. like enhances the smell. And it's yeah. it's amazing, right? It's Place is full of miracles. Mm -hmm. Have you heard about the uh, fairy shrimp? You mm -mm. know about that? Mm -mm. There is, um, do you remember um, when I grew up in the back of comic books, there were usually these, these ads for... Uh, sea fairies or sea or whatever and you would order them and you'd get a little little envelope with these little seeds and stuff in it and you put it in water and you'd have these little shrimp would instantly appear and there are other species other places in the country but if you get water for more than a few days you will get fairy shrimp and they grow fairly large and the fairy shrimp the species they have out there is found nowhere else in the world but in not just inside the nca but inside the military training area um you know, and they just recently discovered these. You know, the science they've done showed that the Townsend ground squirrel is not what they have out there. They have the Paiute ground squirrel, which is a unique subspecies. You know, it's just, there's stuff out there that, yeah, it's just amazing. People don't know what's out there. It's found, some of it is found nowhere else in the world. Obviously, the concentration of raptors, nowhere else like it in northern in North America. And it is certainly one of the top two or three in the world concentration of raptors. Like I said, the largest concentration of badgers in the world. It's like, and people don't know about it, you know, and mm -hmm. it's... It, you know, and the thing is, uh, I mean, I've seen videos that the environmental people have taken and some soldiers have taken. doesn't do it justice. Um, it, you really need to put all of it into context to, to realize just how amazing that place is out there. The National Conservation Area and uh, the Military Training Area, just, I don't know, just... And I'm glad I have an opportunity to still keep going out there, so... Yeah. Uh, it's just, I love it. I miss it, training out there. Uh, I don't miss the training so much because uh, that was hard. But uh, going out there and, uh, you know, working, doing hard physical work, uh, you know, when the temperatures are in the upper 90s, lower 100s, a lot of what I did out there, I was in communication, so it was done outdoors, not in a tent, you know, setting up radio communications uh, and whatnot, and it, it is hard. That part I don't miss so much, but the, the sun rises, the smells, mm -hmm. Just the uh, the panoramic views, the the wildlife out there. That's yeah, just an amazing place. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm glad we were able. To, we, I'll say, as a citizen of this country, we were able to protect it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a it's a crazy story how we got there to that protect level of protection, right? I mean, yeah, there's yeah, it, it's like it the really more is. We, the more we dig into this, the more layers that we uncover, and it's fascinating. I'm taking a history course, uh, and in the course we're talking about the five C's of history. Mm. And that place, uh, 
checks a lot of blocks. You know, there's change over time. Well, I've talked about the biological change over time, but the change of status over time. Mm -hmm. Change over time. Context is really important. Causality. Why do things happen? Um, complexity is another issue mm -hmm. uh, in history. There is a lot more to the story than we usually know. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the fifth one. Not important, but... Yeah. Yeah, there's uh, when you start looking at something like that where there were so many people involved and so many steps along the way. I mean, it wouldn't have happened. What we have out there now would not have been defined if not for the science. Mm -hmm. Well, you think, oh, it's just a stroke of the pen, which in Cease's withdrawal, if you hear his story, it is exactly what it was, a stroke of the pen. But the stroke of the pen followed the completion of the first environmental impact statement, which mm -hmm. completed in 1979, mm -hmm. and all the science that went before that. And then to get from there to the congressional withdrawal, um, all the politics that went on, all the bringing the stakeholders together, mm -hmm. and all the stakeholders that were involved. And, uh, you know, Idaho Power created, with Morley Nelson, created a design for power poles right. that would protect raptors that has been adopted globally. Idaho Power did this with Morley, and the whole world uses this as a way of protecting birds. Mm -hmm. Who knew that? You know, <laughs> that's another part of the story. It's just, uh -huh. yeah, it's just, yeah. That's it's like actually like a huge global impact that came out of this little story and this little NCA. It's just really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you know, it, prairie falcons are found worldwide, as are peregrine falcons. Although you know, we have the peregrine front here, but there are not a lot of peregrines out there. Mm -hmm. But the science that we do with falcons, harriers, hawks, and eagles, those species are found all over the world. So mm -hmm. a lot of the science we do here is utilized by the rest of the world. So right. uh, the little peregrine fun and our not little NCA out there have a global impact. Mm -hmm. I mean, as a tourist attraction, now people have heard of it. They come from other parts of the country and other parts of the world, you know, uh, birders. Uh, birders are a rabid population in some ways. An avid birder will travel to the ends of the earth to see a bird. And, I mean, uh, birds of prey is known all over the world because of what you can see out there. Global impact. Mm -hmm. People don't realize it. You know, it's mm -hmm. instead it's just desert wasteland south of town. Why are we not drilling for something out there or mining for something out there? Why do we care about protecting it? Because it has a global impact, mm -hmm. you know, so... You know, it's, uh, and it gets, you know, uh, every time they make a change out there, every time they do a new EIS and sign a new memorandum of understanding, there are those who pick away at it and want to either make it smaller for financial reasons, they want to farm it or do something there, or want it smaller because they don't like the military. That's an interesting component to have people that are opposed to the military being there because they're opposed to the military being anywhere. Uh, there are some people who just, every time the military wants to change something, even sometimes they've shuffled boundaries to make it better for the species that live out there, there's opposition. No, you don't need that. You need to just go away kind mm -hmm. of stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's, people don't know the whole picture. I think talking with the people that work out at Gowan Field in the environmental office and stuff. A lot of them, I mean, they clearly know the biology of what's out there and the impact and how important the biology is. But I don't think they can put it into the broader historical context of how it came into being. Sure. I mean, if you go on it, there, there are wagon tracks across that desert from the Oregon Trail. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, wow. You know, and you, there are mail routes that were cut across there where they would just go from one town to another to move mail or move goods, you know, and they go through the desert, and they are protected. Mm -hmm. They are uh, cultural resources and natural resources that are being protected. Yeah, just, I, I love the the uh, project. I don't know what I'm going to do when I get done with this, because once I get my master's, I'm not sure where I'm going to go, but I love history uh, wherever it takes me, so... But uh, this has been a really, really fun project. Like I said, the fact that I know Cecil, or I knew him, I met him and talked with him on uh, numerous occasions. Um, he's a gentleman uh, in every way, in a Western U.S. context kind of gentleman, but he's a gentleman in every manner of that definition. Uh, cares about people, but cares about the rest of the, the world too. It isn't just about people. And... Uh, if you can work across the aisles politically and bring in all the stakeholders and stuff, you can accomplish amazing things. And he was able to do that.
that was our interview with Dean Hagerman, historian and former National Guardsman. If you'd like to learn more about this oral history project, more information can be found at birdsofpreyncapartnership.org slash dedication point. Dedication Point is a production of the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership in association with the Bureau of Land Management, the Wild Lens Collective, and the Archives of Falconry. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, and edited by Joey Liebricht. Our theme music is by The Great Turtle.